Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast produced by Private Medical. I'm Jordan Schlain, founder and one of the many physicians in our practice. And today I'm joined by my colleague from our Los Angeles office and sports medicine enthusiast, Dr. Todd Spector. Thanks, Jordan. Glad to be here. Today we're joined by four experts in the fitness space. Dr. Phil Wagner is the CEO of Sparta Science and a thought leader in human performance technology. Dr. Rowan Paul is a sports medicine physician specializing in regenerative medicine and interventional orthopedics. Brian Hanna is the founder of Thrive Muscle Activation, where he marries personal training and bodywork. And lastly, John Burns is the CEO of TB12, a wellness and fitness program co-founded by Tom Brady and his body coach, Alex Guerrero. Let's jump right in. Phil, you're the CEO of Sparta Science. You've been working on a, a technology to help understand how the body actually is without having to do an MRI, so to speak, or do a lot of functional tests. Can you tell us a little bit how you got to where you are and what this test that you've developed does? Yeah, in looking at you know different injuries and performance, you know one of the themes that I kept seeing in the research was the patterns of what's called ground reaction force, which is really the concept that you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So when you push down, you jump up. When you push left, you move right. And that idea of pushing or creating force, what I was reading more and more in the research is the different patterns of creating force um, certainly leads to enhanced performance, but also is able to start identifying injury risk, um, whether that's through balancing and assessing that force or jumping and assessing that force. And so we started gathering, shoot, about 10 years ago now, all this raw data around force plates, which is the device that captures that force production, and then layered in machine learning to really start clustering and identifying these different force patterns into what we call signatures. And those movement signatures then we started layering on top of different performance capabilities and different injury profiles. So they started to gain more meaning at scale. And so force plates are typically these big, heavy things that, that people have to jump on, right? They, they live in gyms, they live in, in big labs. And so you've miniaturized this now? Yeah. So, you know, the idea is, you know, how can we take what's in academic labs or gate labs within health systems and how can we make it accessible for everyone? you know, just like a weight scale. So it's light enough and portable enough and the software is insightful enough to actually be used on a consistent basis. And so one of the key things we found with data is it lets you hone in on what's the minimum therapeutic dose, right? Because what we see failing a lot when it comes to movement is, okay, you're not exercising, here's a plan four days a week for an hour, right? And so you right away put this big hill to climb, you know, for someone who may not have been previously active. So we think a big value on, on data is being able to say, okay, if you only have 10 minutes, here are the things that you need to do for those 10 minutes based on your data. And then from there, hopefully starting to snowball that 10 minutes into something longer over time that really, to your point, builds those sustainable habits. 
Brian, do you want to talk a little bit about how you bring patients in and assess them and what your process is like? So uh, I would say that, you know, the goal of what I want for somebody that comes in to see me is I want them to feel like I heard what they were saying, ask some provoking questions, get some information out of them. And I really want to take that as deep as I can. But at the same time, people want to, I do mostly manual therapy and strength coaching. So people want me to be assessing them. They want me to be doing things. So I am, uh, I'm assessing them. And I'm making some sort of an intervention, whether it be like a muscle activation or some sort of a release or whatever, um, because I know how to make them feel better generally. So I'm trying to give them some sort of a tactile thing, a change so they can actually see something happen. They can see their force improve. They can see their mobility improve right there on the table. And it makes them feel really good because they can actually feel it in their body and they can see it happening. Um, and then to the to best that I can, I'm trying to talk to them while I'm doing that and saying, you know, what the same questions that Dr. Paul is saying is, is what are you doing? What is your life like? What is your kid's life? What is your stress like? You know, and kind of layering that in. Um, and most of my, my practice has been evolving in a way where I actually find that to be more helpful in the long run. In the short term, I can make changes with somebody, but if all of those other bigger factors, the emotional state and the sleeping and all of that is off, then that person's just maybe going to get better in the short run, but they're going to get frustrated because they're not going to make long-term changes. So my practice has evolved to doing a lot more of that kind of coaching and consulting and helping people help themselves more and giving them a little bit more autonomy than it is actually doing, you know, the therapies. Can, can you tell relatively quickly if, if someone's got like the, the mindset to, to embrace the, the whole program that you're going to offer? A lot of times a person comes, they walk in and they just give me the keys and they say, here's my body, you know, you do the things. And that is not a, that's not a person that's going to be real successful because they're completely giving over the responsibility of their body to somebody else. And there's only so much that you can do. I'm, I'm with that person, maybe one hour a week or two hours a week. They have 168 hours a week that, you know, they need to be responsible for it. Whereas other people, they come in and they say, okay, here's what I've been doing. Here's where I'm coming from. Um, I would like you to tell me what exercises should I take out? What exercises do I need to add in? I have three hours a week. Show me some videos. Let's, you know, can you film me doing these videos? Can you cue me so that I can follow up and do this? When they start asking those questions, I know that that person really wants to become part of um, their own success. And those are the people that tend to do the best. Something that we're very excited about here is this concept of, we, we get asked all the time about longevity and often Tom Brady gets brought up in that conversation. And people will say, well, look at him. What's that guy doing? I see often in the people that we take care of, people will initiate exercise programs. Um, they'll, they'll maybe get injured. They'll try and come back from an injury. They may never get back to where they were, or they may decide to stop doing stuff based on an injury. So what is exciting for me to hear about in this conversation is the concept of longevity in not necessarily living for a long time, but being active and performing at a high level for a really long time, and also concepts around prehab and rehab for both injury prevention and recovery. Yeah, and I think that, you know, is so important. And I think it's at the core of why our company was founded and what we do with people every day. And look, Todd, I think uh, for Tom, which is where this started, and we can, you know, bring this to, you know, people like us here in a moment, um, we talk a lot about viability, hydration, nutrition, movement, mental fitness, uh, the lifestyle and the things to help you not only get longevity, but as you so astutely pointed out, you have to make lots of the right choices. And so we spend a lot of time 
working with people to help them adopt better habits to improve their health, improve their wellness. Uh, for us, the core of it, because where we started is in this notion of muscle pliability, getting your body and your tissues in a state where they're as healthy as possible. So you're moving without restriction. You're moving without pain. You're moving without asymmetries. Because for most of us, as we age, get into your 40s, 50s, 60s, you have accumulated a series of bad movement patterns, most likely, because it really hasn't been until the last five or 10 years um, that people have focused on recovery as part of their longevity and getting their body to work most efficiently and, uh, and most well. I have a, a question with regard to some of this remote therapy about the uh, percussive devices like Theraguns um, that a lot of people are using or vibrating um, foam rollers vibrating balls that people roll on. Per personally, I actually really like them. And I go to some very evidence-based physical therapists and they're like, I don't know, those things, they might feel good, but they don't really do a lot. And I'm like, well, you know, when I get on that thing, I notice, you know, quite a bit of difference in my range of motion following it. And I'd love to hear thoughts about those type of devices and how people use them. Are they Are they useful? What do they do to the tissue? How can they be used correctly? I have a lot of thoughts about that. I had a client that used it like in um, the antecubital area and the bicep, you know, like right in the front of the um, the bicep area and completely destroyed his arm for like a long time. It took me an hour and a half to even get it to be able to produce force again because he had just mauled it so bad. So I think it depends on where you're using it, but people that are vibrating foam rolling the back and things like that are probably not, um, not as likely to have a problem, but I have definitely seen people use them in the wrong areas and, and pretty much, you know, like create huge problems for themselves that have taken quite a while, weeks to get over. Um, so that would be my first like caution. Um, the other one that I've seen is that there's a lot of things you can do to manipulate the nervous system, you know, little tricks and hacks, um, stretching being one of them, mobilizing things and do a lot of trickery where you can kind of freak out the nervous system and you can get increases in range of motion. But if you don't integrate that motion so that the body understands that it has the new motion and it knows what to do with the new motion, then you actually are opening up an unstable area. And if the body doesn't feel strong there, then the body will go there. And if it's not strong and safe there, then potentially you could open up injuries. So there's another issue there that if you are using it with the intention of opening the range and teaching your body how to use it effectively and strengthen it then I think that then potentially you have, you know, a winning formula there uh, because it is important to have full range of motion. We all know that, right? But opening up a, a weak and unstable range of motion is a, is a challenge. I mean, I think I see that a lot with people with back pain. People will come in like, oh, you know, I want to work on my range of motion and my mobility. And then they start doing yoga and they get their muscles super pliable, but then they, you know, end up overstretching their lumbar spine and the muscles surrounding it. And then their hamstrings are super tight and they're, you know, a mess for, for, for weeks afterwards. Maybe, maybe we can all take a swing and I don't, um, obviously everybody has different expertises here, but maybe take a swing at talking about approaching back pain. As we all know, back pain can be challenging because of the just huge numbers of potential pain generators that can you know, be the cause of a specific or a non-specific source of back pain. So, you know, our, our strategy uh, with Brian and I, so we look individually to try and find specific pain generators, but then we also try to treat both specifically and integratively um, up and down the kinetic chain. So, um, you know, I think it starts with having, again, a, a very thorough history and, and trying to listen for uh, 
sort of trigger words, if you will. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, some people talk about having pain with coughing and sneezing or for prolonged sitting or transition from sitting to standing. And, you know, each of those can have, um, can move you down a certain pathway as to, is this discogenic pain? Is it the set mediated pain? Is it myofascial and musculoskeletal? Is it SI joint pain? You know, I, I try and really get to the bottom of that. And, and the patients will largely tell you by history, you just have to listen, you know, and, um, you know, then I have a sense of it. Then I start kind of testing my hypotheses in my head. It's like, all right, you know, um, is this facet mediated pain? And I'll sort of take them into, you know, provocative maneuvers and stuff that might suggest that it could be. And then uh, if that hurts, great. And I feel like this, the, the exam test is sensitive enough to pick it up. Um, then I start, you know, looking at imaging and then potentially diagnostic and potentially therapeutic injection. Sometimes I'll just put a tiny bit of anesthetic exactly where I think the pain generator is and see if that actually takes the pain away. Um, and then that gives me a hint of, am I in the right zip code or not? But then the treatment is often, you know, not just treating a facet or a disc or, or, or you know, a multifidi erector spinae. It's like, you know, treat, but then reintegrate and reactivate. And that's where, you know, Brian comes in um, with me and, uh, you know, I have all sorts of tools that can help, you know, snuff out inflammatory kind of flares and, you know, improve structural health and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you got to get strong. You have to be balanced and you have to be able to integrate your movement. So it's multidisciplinary. I think that what's interesting to, to Todd and I is, you know, we, we see people in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, all the way up to their eighties. And it's, how do we, how do we up level their, their, their state of, of, of resilience and physicality? Cause I think I'm interested in, you know, I'm as a, as a mid fifties guy, you know, trying to make sure that I leave my fifties in the same place I got into my fifties. Um, and that, that's going to require work. There are no shortcuts. So, so this is effectively, it's a dedication to your future self, isn't it? If someone has a knee that's bothering them, right, and they go to traditional physical therapy, right, that treatment will typically revolve around a little bit of heat on the knee, probably some stem, right, probably a few exercises specific to knee uh, extension usually, and then some cold, right? And that's a pretty traditional physical therapy approach. The core to what we do is we take a much more holistic view. So if you come to us and you say your knee hurts, right? We start at the foot and the ankle, and we go all the way to the hip and the back, right? And we make sure everything is working from end to end, because chances are the cause of your knee pain, unless you had a very specific acute injury, like you tore a meniscus because something happened, right? If you're having knee pain, it's probably because something is out of whack, right? Your foot's not landing. You're not doing heel to toe when you walk because you don't have the ankle flexion that you need, right? So we look at the whole body. You know, I'll give you another good example. We get a lot of golfers that come to us with back pain, right? And what's really the source of that back pain for golfers? Is it really the back? Sometimes, but more often than not, it's the hips. The hips don't have the mobility. The hips aren't moving right, so you can't rotate properly. And therefore, your back has to compensate because your hips are not moving right. And, you know, we see these things over and over and over and over again. And Phil, does, just, just back to the force plates, do they have any bearing on, on back pain or, or back issues? I know we talked about knees and, and, and hips. Yeah, it's, it's quite, quite predictive around back pain. And what's interesting, a lot of times what we see, it's folks that either actually have too much mobility 
Um, Todd was mentioning yoga. You know, people are doing a lot of yoga and, and it also happens in people with too much stability, right? Because a lot of times the, you know, the mindset is I can never have enough core stability. You can, you can have too much core stability or I can never be too flexible. You can, you can be too flexible. And so what happens a lot of times is individuals gravitate towards one of those two things, mobility and stability, mostly because they like it and they're probably good at it. And so a lot of times the value of data is to expose them to, hey, while you like that, you have too much and we've got to bring you back to center. One of the metrics that we look at is what's called movement variability. And it's much like heart rate variability, you want to actually have an irregular balance pattern when you're standing. Because if you're rigid, much like Parkinson's, that's that excessive stability. Versus if you're like very, uh, if you don't have any sort of strength or structure, you're like a wet noodle. So how do you find that balance through movement variability that allows you to be responsive, but not completely flaccid? And I think a lot of it is is just centered around, you know, what what your activities look like. And a lot of folks are creatures of habit, right? You know, they they like one thing, they're good at one thing, and they're all in, right? And, the, and I think the challenge is how, how we can use data to help support what they do like to do with other things that um, can help balance out the stimulus from that one activity where they really um, have a longer history around. And, and so it sounds like there needs to be a diversified portfolio of, of different exercises that one does, you know, maybe a little yoga, maybe a little weight training, maybe a little running. I mean, it's a good point. We see it in youth athletes actually have over the years, since the last 10 years, we've seen a dramatic drop in movement variability in youth athletes with that specialization that's occurring. You know, kids are growing up not playing two, three, or even unstructured activities, right? Everything's very structured, one club sport, that's all they do, right? And as a result, they don't develop that variability of movement. You know, certain people are attracted to certain activities in part because their bodies on the surface seems to be good at it, right? You know, you take those, you know, hyper-flexible Ehlers-Danlos patients and they gravitate towards yoga and they say, you know, and there's this, you know, culture of more is better, and so they end up, you know, pushing, 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 pushing. And now you're taking unstable joints and making them more unstable. And, and hopefully they pick up some of the stability and strength and balance and awareness with that comes with, you know, doing a lot of yoga. But for most of them, they're trying to push motion. They, a lot of them come in and see me having just jacked up their joints and we have to put it, reintegrate them and, and, and put that back together. But so I'm usually, you know, I'm not saying you know, EDS patients or hypermobile patients should not do yoga. I usually frame it as, um, if you're going to do yoga, you're not, I don't want you doing yoga for flexibility. I want you to do it for balance, awareness, mental health, um, you know, proprioception, you know, other non-flexibility related goals. And, 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 uh, and, and I, I also believe in sort of like cross training and, and sort of, um, sort of breaking injury patterns. And I, I think it does, seem to help patients in general. And I, I agree. I think that we do need to get people to cross train and do a variety of exercises to enhance their longevity as an athlete or even just a human being 
who doesn't consider themselves an athlete? What is the best way that you see long-term to prevent injuries in terms of a, uh, a menu of exercises that we could recommend? I think it really depends on, you know, the context of who this person is. You know, if we're looking at a 25-year-old, you know, college athlete, ex-college athlete who's super active and, you know, has maintained a physical uh, conditioned, you know, life post college, you know, they're going to be a different beast than sort of a middle-aged or an an elderly person. So I try and, you know, age match a little, um, but not strictly. I look at genetics. I look at risk predisposition to joint replacement or cuff tears or something like that. And, and try and say, okay, you know, we know through your, you know, first degree relatives, or I'm actually going further now with even, you know, genetic and epigenetic sort of analysis, but you know, you know, we can maybe predict that you would be at higher risk for X and therefore we want to get ahead of that and prevent that by doing Y, you know, I, am a huge fan of Pilates. I actually think, um, it, it's a really interesting movement discipline that teaches you to kind of connect your kinetic chain. I think, um, you know, it helps people refine their body, so to speak, you know, kind of middle age, um, you know, I, I do yoga myself and, and I enjoy it, but I am also not, not one of these like must do it six days a week kind of yoga you know, practitioners. You know, I think depending on your body type, you know, a couple of days a week makes sense to me. Um, and maybe a basic, you know, five, 10 minute flow in the morning kind of gets my body moving and, and a lot of my patients and, but it has to be done with being cognizant of where your body is on that day, you know, so you don't injure yourself. I think we've, we've got to look at exercise like pharmaceuticals. And right now, a lot of what we're talking about is like, and I kind of started talking about it too, with yoga is we look at, well, all yoga is the same, like all antibiotics are the same, right? Whereas there's poses in yoga that emphasize stability and there's others that emphasize mobility. And really the same is true with Pilates is that there are certain moves that, emphasize stability versus mobility. And I think when we look at whether it's weight training, Pilates or yoga, we've got to hone in on what's the, what's the right exercises for what you need based on how you move. Because, you know, everybody can and should do yoga, Pilates, weight training. The real question is which of those exercises within those groups are the most suited for your needs? You know, downward dogs, very different than a tree pose, right? And so, you know, how can we get closer and closer to having that individual, you know, prescription for each person? I agree with what we're talking about here. I think that Phil had a good answer for that. And I would say that my answer would be the best exercise for someone is uh, an exercise that they're actually going to do. So it, it goes back to like, what kind of equipment do they have and how do they feel about doing it? Sometimes you try to throw a guy into not be stereotypical, but you throw a guy into a yoga class and they're going to go, Oh God, what am I doing here? Right. You throw certain people into like a running race and they're going to feel overwhelmed. They're like, Hey, I'm not an athlete. Why am I with all these people that have sweatbands on? I don't understand what's going on. So, you know, throw somebody in a weight training environment, they're going to feel overwhelmed. So it depends on, you know, could you get the intended result um, in a different environment. So doing Pilates is kind of the functional training, moving your body, the tensegrity, like Dr. Paul was saying, 
Um, that all makes sense. But maybe they you show them how to recreate those moves. You can call it the banana exercise or whatever you want. So it's not intimidating. It's just different ways of moving and structuring your exercise. So um, I think that we need to be a little bit careful about labeling things into certain categories and just saying, listen, movement is movement. The body either understands how to connect the certain types of muscles and knows how to fire a chain of muscles or it doesn't. And if you want to utilize a Pilates apparatus to teach that, and the person likes that, then that's a great way to go about it. And if you want to get the um, that result for somebody, but the you know they're not going to get it through Pilates, but they'll get it through yoga. Great. I have clients that I send into the swimming pool, and I have them walk and do different kinds of calisthenics in the pool, and they actually do it, and they feel a lot better. It has the intended consequences. Whereas I would prefer them to go to the gym and do it on a yoga mat, but they don't want to do that. So you know we give them a different way to do it. So. I think it kind of goes back to like kind of defining the results for the client and finding a way for them to get the results in what, you know, whatever, what kind of medium they need to take it in. For whatever reason, certainly in Western culture, we've sort of moved away from a a body awareness culture. And, And so people are inherently, they feel it and they try and find their way back through, you know, pick your movement discipline of the decade or the, the year, you know, whether it's CrossFit or, um, you know, yoga or Pilates or whatever it is, I, I encourage my patients to just move, you know, just commit to movement. Right. And, and that might be five minutes in the morning. That might be five minutes before you go to sleep. That might be, you know, once an hour after, you know, workstation or desk, you know, but just, just move. And, and, and not move with intention, um, explore ranges of motion, explore end ranges of motion. Once you sort of start focusing in on that just basic inward, you know, motion, your body, your brain just reconnects, right? We have so many instincts around mo- movement. We have, our body wants to be able to control those joints. It's just resensitizing our body to that movement. It's so important. I agree with you. I, I think that we need to look at the full chain of muscles and joints when we're dealing with any particular injury. I would love to hear a little bit about the use of resistance bands as opposed to traditional weightlifting and um, rotational movement to prevent and heal from injury. So um, we think it's fine to use weights and lift out with weight, lift with weights, but we would recommend supplementing all that stuff with bands, uh, working out with resistance bands. We think resistance bands afford you a few different things, including a different dynamic in terms of how the weight gets just distributed when you exercise, but also it allows you to exercise safely at speed. And I think most people probably listening can envision a traditional bench press. If you go to a gym and see someone do a bench press, you know, they lift the, the, the barbell off the bench, they bring it down to their chest and they push it up very slowly. Um, there is not any sport that I am aware of where your actions happen at that speed, right? Um, sport, any sport happens at speed, golf, tennis, football, baseball, surfing, kite surfing, biking, your legs are moving fast. So what the advantages of bands among many of them is we can get you going through movement patterns at speed, under load in a safe manner. So, you know, I love using the bands because even when you're traveling and you may only have 10 minutes, there's a lot of things that you can do with bands relative to um, uh, uh, hip hinges. Um, Again, movements with your shoulders for scapular health, 
right? To open your body back up. And especially if you've been sitting on a plane, you know, a cross-country trip, you've gone overseas, you've been back and forth to four different cities in five days. So bands are great. On the other hand, if you do have a little more time and you want to get your heart rate up, um, you can do that with bands, right? You can go through big compound motions, banded deadlifts, things like that, um, which really get your heart rate up and help keep your fitness up. And the other great thing about bands is in a pretty simple fashion, you can have three or four bands and uh, uh, span a range of resistances. So I will tell you that um, despite them not being weights, we've got countless studies um, of people and examples where using heavier resistance bands, you can actually build muscle mass. So huge proponent of bands. Um, you don't necessarily have to use resistance bands for all your training. It certainly can complement everything else you're doing. If you're a runner, we would advocate you use bands to work on a strength program, especially make sure your body's moving right. If you're a golfer, especially for rotational movements, things like that. So bands are great for that. I, I guess some some final thoughts here is like where where is it uh, where's exercise going, Brian? As you mentioned, you know, figuring out who we are should inform what exercise we should do. Will there be ways as technology moves closer to the home and kind of the stuff that Phil's working on? Will do you do you see opportunities to get these these diagnostics at home and then find like a virtual coach, or will we always need humans? To help guide us through these 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 physical endeavors, not really treating, but but building resilience. I really love what's happening, like all this data that's coming out. Like you know, what Phil's working with this very simple test that you can consistently check in with. Um, are you balancing better? That's a very specific test. If you start walking three times a week and once a week, you recheck your balance numbers, and they're getting better you know, then you're doing something good, right? That's just, you know, your, your body says, yes, this is good, right? You start doing Olympic weightlifting and you start getting more shaky, you know, in your balance test, then you're, it's probably not helping you. Maybe you need to do that kind of exercise differently, or maybe that kind of exercise just isn't good for you. That's where the whole subjective thing and the coaching and all of that stuff comes in. So I think it's a really good way to, um, it's a good place to start. I actually track my data with an aura ring. Also, it tracks your heart rate variability. It tracks your sleep numbers and things like that. So it gives me a whole bunch of data. And I, every morning, I can't wait to check it and see if how my numbers look. And if they look good, I then go through my memory bank and I think, what did I do yesterday? And that involves resting, that involves sleeping, that involves exercise. You know, there's certain things. I did a, my own spinning workout for like 30 minutes the other day at like around 4 p.m. before dinner. And my numbers were destroyed afterwards. I slept horribly. And I said, uh-oh, something went wrong. You know, maybe I try that again and I see if it happens every time. Maybe it was an, an error in the measurement, you know. But I think that um, this, all of this data is giving us the, it's, it's a good place to start. And I think that every person needs to, you know, take um, their health into their own hands and get educated a little bit and then decide what to do with that information. I think that that is where we are headed in the next, say, decade. I think that most people are going to take back the power of their body and they're going to use some of the data. They're going to use some of the coaches, some of the education to get um, reintegrated with their body and understand what makes my body feel good, what makes it feel worse. You know, and if I'm trending in a direction I don't like, like I'm not sleeping as well, or I'm losing weight or, you know, my hormones are changing, then trying out an intervention, I'm going to try yoga for six weeks and I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to try strength training and I'm going to see what happens. Yeah, no, no. I think you're absolutely right. I completely agree, Brian. I think, you know, uh, starting with some easily, you know, bite-sized 
data about your body and some something that gives you some actionable insight is going to get more people um, calibrated to themselves. And now we're in an era of, you know, wearables, but not just wearables. Like, you know, uh, you know, there's lots of companies with artificial intelligence and neural networks, you know, that are using, you know, software sophistication to track your performance and, you know, actually give you personalized opinions of what you should be doing for your next workout. No, I, I think the world is, is, is all about data going forward. I, I wear an aura ring and I do notice that when I exercise more, I sleep better. It's, you know, it's a crude instrument. I don't, I don't view it as like the Holy grail of it's going to tell me everything I need to know about myself, but it seems like every single time I, I work out, I sleep better. And every single time I have one or two drinks, I sleep worse. I've got endless questions. So we may need to revisit some of these topics down the road, but thank you all. Thank you for tuning in and thank you to our special guests, Sparta Science CEO, Dr. Phil Wagner, sports medicine physician, Dr. Rowan Paul, founder of Thrive Muscle Activation, Brian Hanna, CEO of TB12, John Burns, and my co-host and partner, Dr. Todd Spector. See you next time.